The scene is Russia, and it's 1917. It's just a couple of years after the revolution of 1917. So sorry, it's not 1917. It's a few years after the revolution of 1917. And Vladimir Lenin is facing Bertrand Russell. Bertrand Russell, never a man shy to ask difficult questions, asked Lenin, how do you justify the millions of Russians you murdered? How do you reckon Lenin might reply? Surely he'll deny the murders or he'll blame someone else. But he said, you can't make an omelette without breaking eggs. It's a chilling response. And the eloquent and quick-witted Bertrand Russell was lost for words. It's a chilling response because human life is reduced to the level of something you buy by the dozen at Coles. What is it to be human? What is it to be human? It's a basic but crucial question. Yet the answers swirling around in culture aren't so clear. One prominent answer from a materialist's perspective is that we're highly evolved products of time and chance. We're determined by our genetics and are only distinguished by our highly evolved brains from the rest of the animal kingdom. And even they're determined by biochemical processes. As one notable atheist is famous for saying, DNA neither cares nor knows, DNA just is, and we dance to its music. Or a little more catchy, um, by the bloodhound gang, you and me, baby, ain't nothing but mammals. I'll let you complete that in your own mind. Or there's the, um, or there's the words from Rag and Bone Man's song, Human? Yeah. I can't remember how it goes, I'm only human after all, don't put your blame on me. That's according to the materialist perspective. To be human is to be highly evolved mammal, mammals, the result of time and chance. Now, with, with that in mind, what does this psalm before us this evening have to say? For the following three weeks, we're dipping into the church's ancient prayer book, the book of Psalms, and we're going to look at life through the psalmist. And this evening, it's Psalm 8. Now, I think that the picture of humanity that we get in Psalm 8 is more valuable, here it comes, than just about anything. I'm prone to exaggeration, but you know, I think it's true. The picture of Psalm 8, the picture of humanity that we get in Psalm 8, I think is more valuable than just about anything. Arian and I have recently begun telling people that she's pregnant. And so... <laughs> and so... <laughs> And so, with a little baby growing and hopefully soon to come into the world, I've been doing a bit of thinking about how to father this baby um, in the future. What do I want him or her to believe about him or herself? And as I've been thinking, along with preparing for this sermon, it struck me. I don't think there is anything more valuable that I could offer this baby than the message of Psalm 8. If I could offer this baby a comfortable and cushy life, full of the most expensive gadgets and experiences... It would be nothing compared to them grasping the message of Psalm 8. If we get Psalm 8, if we let Psalm 8 do its work on us, we'll know our place in the world 
we'll have clarity of purpose, and most of all, we'll have a knowledge of our value in the eyes of our Creator. So let's jump right in. Verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The refrain, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, starts and ends the psalm. Whatever the psalm's going to say, it's got to be understood in the context of this opening and closing verse in mind. And even in these first few words, the question, what is it to be human, is beginning to be answered. Let me explain. If I was to describe myself to someone who didn't know me, I can't accurately describe myself without explaining myself in terms of relationships. I'd say something like, Hi, I'm Dave, and I'm married to Arian, and I'm an assistant minister at St Mark's Freshwater. To describe myself, I need to, dis- to speak in terms of relationships. And it's exactly the same when it comes to answering the question, what is it to be human? The answer is tied up first and foremost to our relationship with our creator. As the reformer John Calvin said, man or humanity never attains to a true self-knowledge until he has previously contemplated the face of God and come down after such contemplation to look into himself. The knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves are bound together by mutual tie. In other words, to properly know ourselves, we need to know God. Humans can't be reduced down to simply products of genes or mutations, to impulses or DNA. And the psalmist knows this. We only see ourselves aright when we see ourselves in relation to God. And so just before the psalmist writes a psalm about the place of humanity in creation, he writes, O Lord, our Lord. And the psalm goes on, You have set your glory above the heavens. Now two words have been used so far to describe the God in which we're in relationship with. And those words are majestic at the very beginning and glorious just here. Now these two words, majestic and glorious, can so easily become overused and dry and even sort of religious-y sounding words. But notice how the psalmist turns to creation to unfold the meaning of these words. So we saw in the royal wedding, the royal family's majesty was expressed in the clothes they wore and the cars that transported them and the the buildings in which they live and in which the ceremonies they took part in were, were completed. That was their majesty. But God's majesty is the Great Barrier Reef. With all its shades, brilliant and vibrant shades of colour. Imagine swimming in that. The Great Barrier Reef with its brimming life, with its blue angelfish, with its brownish gropers which aren't in the picture, the bright blue and orange damselfish, the list of fish in the Great Barrier Reef is endless. They were all God's idea first. They're God's handiwork. They're God's majesty, according to Psalm 8. That's God's majesty. But God's glory is seen in the heavens. God's glory could be, or is, the northern lights in Alaska. Of the northern lights, one um, person who visited wrote this. The expanse of the sky transformed from total blackness into an infinite canvas on which brushstrokes of apricot, sapphire and emerald painted themselves into the night sky. And she goes on. 
The colours refused to stand still. The hues danced as if listening to jazz. Iridescent uh, shades sharpened, then faded with wild fervour. If these lights were so beautiful, how much more stunning must their maker be? What kind of God paints the sky in such effulgent, effulgent hues? For some, the northern lights are a tourist attraction. But for me, they are a portal into the very glory of God. My lips remained motionless, but my soul sang as I witnessed this revival in the night sky. Now, as a bit of a side note, J.I. Packer, theologian, says that in the 21st century, we're living at the end of four centuries of God shrinking. Ever since the Enlightenment, the West has been on a quest to make man big and God really small. So that now, when people around us hear, the, hear us say the word God, they're assuming that we're referring to a being that's just like us, but a bit bigger. A projection of ourselves into the sky. Humanity writ large. But to the God in this psalm and the God of the scriptures shatters all our categories and boxes for him. He stands above creation like a potter stands above his clay. He spoke the galaxies into existence. He's fiercely loving and he's fiercely faithful. He hates what is evil. The God we worship is self-existent. That means life comes from him. He's dependent on no one. He's eternal. We can't get our heads around that. He's dependent on nothing. I already said that. He's three in one. He's the lion and the lamb. This is the God that we worship. Now I say all this to make this point. To understand ourselves aright, we need to understand ourselves as in relationship with this God. This infinite, eternal God. So when you see yourself, do you see yourself as loved by this infinitely powerful, beautifully creative God? Now, our society talks a lot about self-confidence, but I think they're missing a crucial piece of the puzzle. You can be self-confident when you see yourself as loved by this eternal, infinitely powerful God. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, If God is for us, who can be against us? Let's move on. Verses 3 and 4. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Now, I think I've only ever felt in awe under a dark, starry sky once. Um, and that was last year when Arian and I went to the Northern Territory. Um, and we were on a backpackers tour to Uluru. And two nights before reaching Uluru... The tour guide took us to a bit of the country with you know, red dirt as you have it all around there uh, to collect branches and twigs and not twigs, sort of skinnier branches and put them on the, the minivan as he took us to the campfire, the campsite. And as we had our dinner um, around the campsite and had some good times chatting and then slowly met ourselves uh, ready for bed or the swag, the fire died down and... The sky just lit up. There were thousands of stars in the sky. I put my back down on the swag and I just looked up and I assumed that I wouldn't get much sleep that night. I did, I was exhausted. 
But it was amazing. Each one of those stars, a sun in its own solar system, I've never felt smaller. My life has never felt smaller. From dust to dust. Now, I think it's too easy in our technological age to feel like we're more in control than we actually are. We can access nearly any service from around the world with just the touch of a screen we can reject by swiping right. We can travel the world without too much of a worry. And so we can so easily deceive ourselves and forget that we're from dust and to dust we will return. The word humble um, derives from the Latin word which means from the earth. Ultimately, at some stage in our life, whether sooner or later, we're going to face our from the earthness. And like the psalmist, are you aware of your own smallness and frailty? Because if you are, there's comfort to be had. Uh, Let's think about a baby. Babies are small and they're fragile which is why I have not held them very much up until recently when I realised I need to start practising. In Roman times, babies were often left out in the elements. And of course, when they were uh, left out in the elements, they had no chance. Unless, of course, someone came by and took them in, and Christians at the time were known for doing that, but that's not my point. My point is that babies are fragile and they're defenceless without the care of an adult. But as soon as they're taken in by an adult, the baby is as safe as the person who takes them in. And it's the same with us. In comparison to the vastness of the galaxy, we're weak and we're fragile. When I consider your heavens, what is man, that you're mindful of him, that you care for him. But the difference is... Well, not the difference. But we're cared for by God. Just as the baby is as safe as the parent that takes him or her in, we're as safe as the capacities of our God. Now that is crazy. Let that sink in. That's the second point. Compared to the vastness of our creation, humans are insignificant. We're weak and we're fragile. Yet the God of the galaxies looks at us and he cares for us. Let's move on to verses 5 to 8. You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honour. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the sea. In these four verses, the psalmist has Genesis 1 in mind, where the creation account culminates with the creation of humankind, of humanity. And despite our seemingly insignificance in terms of size, God gives us a role in his creation that far outweighs our size. And each one of us is crowned with glory and honour. Under God, where to order our lives Our workplaces, our school life, our world, like a king or queen, might order their kingdom. Now, the psalmist really isn't pulling back here. The word used of the crown that humans have, the the crown of glory, 
is the same word used to describe God's glory just before. Under God, God has given us a share in his own glory. And in verse 6, we've also been made rulers of his creation. Now, at this point, we need to be careful. It's been a common criticism against the Genesis account, against Christianity, that it places humanity too centrally in creation, to rule creation no matter what the cost to the world around them. If we were to use our God-given role in such a way, we'd be acting against God and against his love for what he created. Being crowned with glory and honour means that he has given us responsibility over creation, to nurture it, to care for it, to cultivate it, to farm it, to help it flourish, to bring out its inherent potential. Our authority is given by God for a time, it's limited, and it's directly responsible to the one who gave it to us. Now, having said that, the point of this psalm isn't to tell us to live so much as it is to get us to look at God. This psalm is meant to help direct our eyes to see how good and generous God is. Not only has God given us all things in creation to enjoy, he's given us an important role in creation. Now, I'm not sure about you, but I find it really easy to forget how generous God is. And I've come to the conclusion that that is because I'm really good at taking things for granted. God has given us his handiwork. He's given us his creation. He's given it over to us to care for and enjoy. He's created freshwater beach for us to swim in, for us to surf, for us to explore. He's given us gardens, or some of us, not so many here, to play in. He's given us oceans to fish. He's given us bushes to walk in and explore. He created it all for us and to enjoy. He's not only given us creation, he's honoured us with responsibility in creation. God has given us all a little slice of his world to care for. Whether it's as a mum or dad caring for a family, whether it's as school students caring for your work and learning about God's good world at school, whether it's as a uni student doing the same thing, whether you're an accountant bringing order to the world through Excel magic, whether you're an engineer harnessing physical laws to build things, whatever it is, God's given you a slice of his world to care for, to cultivate, to bring order to. And so I started this evening by asking the question, what is it to be human? The answers that we have at hand in culture are mostly descriptions of humanity without God. So biologically speaking, our consciousness is the result of, our, of coordinated glandular activity. Sociologically speaking, we're the result of where we came from and the environment in which we grew up. Psychologically speaking, our actions are the result of deep psychological drives and impulses. But I suggest that these descriptions of humanity are not only reductive, but because they're reductive, they're not big enough for us to flourish. We're more than our biology. We're more than our psychology. We're more than our sociological history. I find that word hard to say. Psalm 8 speaks of humanity theologically. 
Humanity can only be defined properly in relation to God. And when we see ourselves and our life through the eyes of Psalm 8, everything changes. We change from seeing ourselves as alone and at odds with a hostile world around us, endlessly striving to outcompete our evolutionary rivals. It changes from that to seeing our worlds and ourselves as places of majesty, of glory, beauty and wonder related to the one who created it all. And not just generically, not just related to him generically. As the psalm goes on, even though we're tiny in relation to the rest of creation, God's attention is on us. He's mindful of us and he cares for us. And finally, God's given us responsibility and honour. He's put over He's put us over his creation. He's given his handiwork to us, not to take advantage of it, but to care for it. We're accountable to him for how we steward the little slice of creation he's given us. And so far from eggs by the dozen or particularly evolved animals, humans have a unique relationship to God and his creation. We're loved by him, we're cared for by him, we're honoured by him to live well in the world. But if I was to end there, the picture would be hopelessly incomplete. Even though all of this is true of humanity, we haven't done a very good job at fulfilling this vision. We're sort of like ruined castles, amazingly built and designed, but falling into disrepair. They're still spectacular. If you go to Europe, you're going to visit some ruined castles. But they're nothing like what they used to be. And so this is where Hebrews 2 comes in. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honour and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet... At present, we do not see everything subject to him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. He, the author of Hebrews says, but we see Jesus. I could do nothing better for you this evening than lift your eyes away from yourself to Jesus. Jesus completes the picture of Psalm 8. For 33 years, Jesus lived the perfect human life that I couldn't live for five minutes. He lived in perfect relation to his father. He cared for everyone he came across. He lived a human life that puts my life to shame. But here's the thing. Jesus didn't come to put us to shame. He came to lift us up. As the author of Hebrews says, he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Here at church, we talk a lot about the death of Jesus for us. And that's because it's really important. Our failures as human beings, as many rulers of God's creation, are serious. We turn our back on God, and in so doing, we turn our back on creation and those around us But by turning our back on God, we turn our back on the life source. And of course, we face the consequences. Our life ebbs away. But Jesus is our champion. He's the son of God. He came 
as the creator, to put on our shoes, to take responsibility for all our folly and our neglect of our relationship to the Father and our relationship to this world. First, he lived the life that we should live, and then he died the death that we should die. And he did this so that we might be not only forgiven, but set free from the sin that keeps us from living the Psalm 8 life. That's what it means to become more like Jesus, to be set free from sin, to start living a life where you realize how much the Creator cares for you and you start living a life of responsibility and love in His good world. Now, I said at the outset what I'd like for our forthcoming child more than anything is a vision of himself or herself that aligns with Psalm 8. So much more than just an evolved ape. I'd love our future child to see themselves as created by God, as cared for by him and given by him great responsibility to live well in this world. But more than anything, I'd love our future, our child. I'd love our child to see Jesus who took upon himself our sin so that we might be set free from sins entangling to live the life God has intended for us you might have noticed that i never touched upon verse 2 from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger that's a really hard verse to work out but my take on it is this the strongest foundation for life is praising god when you do that you're getting the main thing right And the strongest of enemies, no matter how strong they appear, has no chance against such praise, even if the praise is coming from the lips of infants. Might the praise of your infinitely powerful creator be the foundation of all that you do and say? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We thank you that you have placed us in your world, in your majestic world full of glory, that you've placed us in this world with honour and glory ourselves. We pray that you fill us with your spirit to live lives like Jesus. And we pray that on our lips and on our hearts is praise for Jesus, the one who set us free to live lives that you would have us live. Amen. Australia.